Now, children, you've met our sisters, but we are the other, less familiar Mrs. I am Mrs. Whatever. Oh, wow, that's great. What, what are you, what are you about? Oh, you know, whatever. Amazing. And I'm Mrs. Weird. Oh, cool. And what do you do? I cast the runes and do readings for people. Oh, wow, that's so awesome. And I follow the web of the weird. Oh, wow, that sounds really whimsical. And who who's that one over there? Oh, that's our sister. She loves w- lurking in the shadows like that. Go on, introduce yourself. I am Miss Wendigo. I represent the hunger of humanity. Unstoppable and unsatiable. Oh, Jesus, no! Not gonna lie, she's a bit extra. Ah! Come with me now, child, to destiny. Please, gosh! Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my scientific co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a peaceful centaur that just wants to write poetry and perform music. And uh, there were some Mrs. W's and some kids that came through my lands, uh, and they were doing a documentary, but then they they cut me out of the film in the end. That's kind of rude, but at least you were able to get back to your art. It's true. It was kind of fun to, like, show other people other than other centaurs what I do. But in the end, it was kind of a distraction. Wow. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Too bad about being cut, though. I know. They really could have used the centaur representation. It's true. And, you know, there's a lot of misrepresentation about centaurs out there, so I would have appreciated a little bit of correction of those stereotypes. I know. The anti-centaur propaganda is disgusting. Yes, that's right. But thank goodness I wasn't cut from the film. My name is Jack Olander, and I'm positive Native American cultural references. I'm in the film, right? I haven't seen it yet, but (laughs) I definitely wasn't cut from the movie. Oh boy, I have some troubling news for you. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Well, guys, we have a movie to talk about this week, but before we do that, I just wanted to give a shout-out to our lovely patrons. Our patrons? Who are they? Well, they're the people who have gone to patreon.com slash swords and satire and signed up to send a couple of bills our way every month to support us, help us fund the show, and in exchange for that, they get some sweet, sweet bonus episodes. It's true, and I mean, they also get to vote on a movie we watch each month. Like this one. That's right! Our second Jennifer Lee movie of the month. You know, our patrons are great. And hopefully some of our listeners will consider joining our patron team. That would be awesome. And we'd super appreciate it. But enough tooting our own horn. Why don't we talk about A Wrinkle in Time? So A Wrinkle in Time is a 2018 film directed by 
Ava DuVernay, written by Jeff Stockwell and, as I said before, Jennifer Lee, writer of Frozen. Yep. Whoa. And, you know, it stars just tons of people. I think, most importantly, Chris Pine. Yeah. But we've got Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, and some kids whose names I don't know. Because they're not listed at the top of this Wikipedia page. (laughs) (laughs) They were great, though. Zach Galifianakis made it on the list, so I guess that's something. Mm -hmm. He's there. He's there, yeah. Right next to Oprah. They're still forming into full human beings, so we'll see. <laughs> they're, they, I think these are good kid actors, though. Yeah, they are. Credit where credit's due. I don't know their names, and I feel bad, but I'm not going to keep looking. They all did a great job. Also, I can't help but keep thinking, The filth of Saruman is Reese withering away. <laughs> oh, my God. What is this withering spoon she wields? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you like to know? Now, this movie is significant in at least one regard. It is the first $100 million film to be directed by a black woman. That's awesome. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Too bad it had to take uh, until 2018, and it had to be Disney, and then the movie didn't do very well. But I don't think that has anything to do with that part of it. I did notice they had more representation in this film, though. Yes, that was definitely a positive attribute of the film. I'm yes. going to go out on a limb and say, also, too bad anything ever costs $100 million. That, too, yes. It was probably mostly Oprah. And I feel like... <laughs> Got her. I feel like she earned it, though. We can get into that in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, remember when Oprah wouldn't pay um, artists to do, like, an Oprah event? And how we know one of those artists? Oh, shit. Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. We have a we have a, a a friend of a friend who is like a professional hula hoop performer, right. and she ended up writing this article about how um, she was going to do this event for an Oprah something or other. I don't really know what types of live events Oprah does, but they were like, "Oh yeah, you know, this is Oprah, the richest like woman on the planet, and we'd like you to do this show for exposure." Right. <laughs> We don't, apparently we don't have a budget to pay artists that come on to our show. Yeah, apparently not. I, I guess it's all got to go to somewhere else. I hope by exposure you mean I get to flash my ass on live TV in front of Oprah. <laughs> get fucked. <laughs> fart. Yeah, yeah. Dutch oven. Dutch <laughs> oven. The audience. But then I just shit my pants. Yeah. But enough about that. Chelsea, I think you've got a summary ready to go for this film. It's true, I do. All right, Chelsea, I'm going to help you out with this one because I know this movie's a little bit complicated. Yeah. So, Act One, Science. Oh, perfect. Thank you, Jamie. So, we have the Murray family. Mr. and Mrs. Murray, or Dr. and Dr. Murray. Doctor? Doctor. Alex and Kate are the parents... Of a duo in this film, in the book, they have a kind of a gaggle of kids. An, an entire gaggle? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm. We've got Meg, who's a real Meg. <laughs> and... <laughs> she is such a Meg. Charles Wallace, the cheerful one. That's accurate. He's very cheerful. Kind of indefatigable. He cannot mm. be fatty. <laughs> 
Fatigued. Fatigued. <laughs> He's without fatig. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex and Kate, the mother and father, you figure out which one is which. Uh, <laughs> listener. Uh, they it doesn't are, really matter they're anyways. They're doctors, but PhDs, you know. They are uh, both physicists. So they could look at my... Oh. I was going to say, I have this thing on my back, and I thought maybe they could check it out, but... Only if it's a planet or an atom. <laughs> I probably oh, have one, some atoms on my it's back. It's one of those things. Yes. Um, Alex is a physicist of the big things, like planets. Okay, got and it. And Kate is a scientist of the little things, like... Like quarks. love. <laughs> or quarks. <laughs> Quark? I love Quark. He's like, my favorite DS9 character. Yeah, exactly. Little things are why she married Alex, also. <laughs> They're working on a project together uh, called the Tesseract. And they wanna, Is this some MCU movie? They want to be able to fold or wrinkle space-time to be able to travel at the speed of thought. Yeah, a fold in time just doesn't sound as good. Alex figures out the key, which we will explain later, and he accidentally tessers through space-time, and is gone for four years. And his kids are totally fine with that, right? Um, so Charles Wallace seems pretty good, but Meg, not so much. Oh, no. She, um, she's really sad most of the time, and, uh, yeah, people just want her to kind of get over it. She's, like, really bumming their chill. That's true. Yeah. She's harshing their mellow. Exactly. She's gotten into bad habits. Like when people attack her for her uh, deepest traumas, she gets sort of upset with them a little bit. Yeah. It's it's not good. What a lunatic. This kid's out of control. She's just like sending out bad vibes wherever she goes and people want to make sure she knows it. <laughs> uh, I mean, specifically one person, I feel like. Turns out Charles Wallace has a trick up his sleeve, and he starts inviting some of the Mrs. W's to the scene. That leads us into Act 2, the fuck? <laughs> this is when Meg, Charles Wallace, and their friend Calvin, the best boy. Oh, Calvin is really sweet. He's a sweetheart and a diplomat. Uh, He's got big Jamie time. vibes. <laughs> mm -hmm. They meet the Mrs. Who's. I mean, <laughs> they meet the Mrs. W's through Charles Wallace. We've got Mrs. What's It? A real dimwit. We've got Mrs. Who, who only speaks in quotes of other people. <laughs> I wish one of her quotes was like, No, please, don't do that. Stop. Christ. Nazareth. No. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Too much? <laughs> Jack is dying inside. Um, then we have Mrs. Witch. Like, which way were they trying to go with this movie? Um, <laughs> Got him. And Mrs. Witch kind of seems to be the one in charge and, like, the most powerful being of light. They're the light queens. Gee, interesting that Oprah got to be the most powerful goddess in the entire film. Yeah. They're kind of like goddesses, yeah. They're basically goddesses. Basically. You could call them Time Lords, Time Queens. I'm not light, going to. Light Warriors, Queens of Light, one of those things. None of those are, are, are what I'm going to call them. I'll call them distressing. 
They teach the kids how to tesser so they can go find Meg and Charles's dad, Alex. They think he's out there and he's been calling out for help. So they travel to different places that he's been before, following his kind of like trace of atoms or something. I don't know. Thought traces? His vibrations. Vibrations. That's right. He's just vibing out there. He's vibing. So first they go to Uriel with the gossiping flowers. Caddy-ass flowers. It's true. Then they go to Orion, where the happy medium lives. He's kind of like heartfelt but goofy at the same time, so real great vibe for our show. Not happy. (laughs) No. Yeah, he's kind of a dour medium, honestly. Yeah. It's a play on words, guys. Yeah. Lonely medium. (laughs) But he likes it that way. It's not a play on words, though. He's called the happy medium, and he's kind of miserable. No, the happy medium. Like, maintaining balance. Oh, I see. No, yeah, sure, but like... I didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we could clear that. But up. like a happy medium is supposed to be something that you're content to settle with, and he does not seem content with anything. He helps Meg track her father through his thought and vibrations, and they realize that he's been trapped in camisots. Which leads us into Act Three, Big Brain. Oh, it's true. So they realize they have to go to camisots. The purely evil place where darkness resides, and there's the It. The it? No, not from It. But oh, no, that's Pennywise. But the It, which is like a dark brain entity. All right, guys, imagine a suburb. That's it. That's the most evil thing I can think of, too. There you go. There's also a crowded beach. Yeah. Also evil. And the kids, when they're there, they have to travel by themselves without the Mrs. W's guiding them anymore because it's a place of pure darkness and they're light warriors and they can't maintain their form there or something like that. As we all know, uh, light always bends for the darkness. Or you can't have dark without the light or light without the dark. Something like that. Exactly. exactly. There's wisdom in these words somewhere. That sounds like something that the film would try to convince you is smart. <laughs> the brightest dark shines in the lightest night. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. Through darkest day and also darkest night. <laughs> yeah. Darkest day and lightest night. <laughs> like in uh, Scandinavia. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, so they, as you said, they traverse these amazing realms within Camazots because it's kind of a realm of thought and it changes around them. Then they get to kind of like the server room after they leave the beach. And um, it's kind of like the ending of the Matrix. Yeah. And it's like the antechamber. Well, not the Matrix. What, the second Matrix? Which is the one where they meet the architect. It's kind of like where the architect is in the Matrix. Yeah. And <laughs> um, it's like the antechamber before you get to the big brain. I hate these puzzle bosses. <laughs> and Charles Wallace is kind of turned into the architect. He becomes a being of pure darkness and starts nagging Meg and so Calvin. True. Meg realizes that there's an underlying architecture to this room. And so she finds a way into the void where she finds her father, who's been crouching there crying for four years, it seems like. 
A Disney movie with two living parents? I'm out of here, guys. I just can't. <laughs> and uh, she convinces him to, like, stop crying in the corner and, like, come home. <laughs> Dad, quit being such a chump and let's get going. I think he was, like, unable to leave by himself. I don't know. It was a little confusing. <laughs> you know when you lock yourself in your own car? Yeah. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> I mean, I think that's what happens with people who drive Teslas, right? That is literally what happens yeah. in this movie. <laughs> I got lost. Um, I really did go in for a pack of smokes. I swear. <laughs> Meg and Alex return to Calvin and Charles in the server room. Charles Wallace goes full dark side and starts trying to drag them to the big dark brain. And uh, Alex tries to tesser his kids and their friend Calvin out of there. He just ends up tessering he and Calvin because Meg ain't ready to go without her little brother. No, Meg still has to beat her brother with facts and logic. Charles Wallace ends up dragging Meg to the big brain uh, in the dark brain realm. And <laughs> uh, he's like one with the dark brain and he's trying to lure her to the dark side. And uh, she just destroys him with love. <laughs> <laughs> and facts and logic. And there's enough light after that for the Mrs. W's to be able to get through and they show up there. That's right. In the place of the purest darkness. So I think they were just full of shit the whole time. Yes. We, I mean, this is, follows a classic tradition of the most powerful people in the film are arbitrarily unable to go to the place they need to be to solve things. Yes. And, um... Something, something, the power of love. Yes. And Meg te tessers them all back home, and she's actually able to see what it's like to tesser when she's moving through space, because she's finally able to accept herself. And, um... Alex and Kate kind of have a, a lukewarm reunion, and um, everything's all good in the world, right? <laughs> it really does have big, like, oh, I thought you were going to be back an hour ago. Oh, no? Oh, that's okay. Energy. Yeah. And um, we get the impression that um, they're going to live happily ever after, I guess. <laughs> Until the next movie maybe probably doesn't happen. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a lot of science. Why don't we head into the Delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of A Wrinkle in Time. Alright, I want to start right off when they're getting their boons from the, the W beings of light, yes. right? Yes. Right when they're about to enter the heart of darkness, Tamazot. From the Mrs. Woods? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> now, what are the three things they got, right? First, glasses. Gotta have glasses. That's You're a nerd, right. you need glasses. They show you things that are invisible, right? Right. Which, that's a pretty useful gift, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how Meg finds her father, yes? Yes. And then Oprah gives... Uh, gives the kids the gift of exposure. And <laughs> not payment. Right. I mean, uh, she's like, <laughs> you get the gift of my command. Okay, what's your command? Go do it. 
No, oh, stay cool. together. Stay together. Yes. Okay. Which they don't accomplish. Yes. No, they really don't. Meg and Charles Wallace stay together. Okay, yeah, I guess but that works. But half of the party doesn't follow that. Yeah. Well, you know what I always say? Always split the party. That's right. Let's split up, gang. You go into the heart of darkness, and we're going to test her home. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to get the fuck out. Yes, but then it's the last boon that I find uh, a little curious. Oh, yeah. Miss What's-It says, I give you the boon of your flaws. I also like to think of her as Miss Dimwit. But yeah, yes. Now, yeah. to set the context, Meg is like a troubled child, right? A troubled person. Yes. She's dealing with the loss of her father, and it's developed into some bad habits of, like, lashing out and closing herself off. She has some unhealthy emotional tools. She's gone from top student to top troublemaker. Yes, and it seems like she's pushed all of her friends and family away. And it also seems like nobody is trying to reach out to help her, really. Except no, for I mean, a few key people. And her mom or anybody is not trying to help her get help like with therapy or anything. I mean, there's literally a scene at the beginning of the movie where two teachers are shit-talking the kid's parents, like, right within Charles Wallace's earshot. I'm like, that is fucked up. Yeah. And Charles Wallace chews him out for that, which yeah. is a great scene. I like that. Yeah, I love that. And then he gets in trouble for... Talking back to a teacher? Fuck that. Kids, always talk back to your teachers if they're being stupid. Or assholes. <laughs> yeah, he says... Tomato, tomato. You don't have to take people being assholes and yelling at you. Yeah. You really don't. He says to his teacher, uh, Meg has more potential in her like little finger than you have had in your entire life or something like that. And it hurts because it's true. <laughs> Got him, educator. Yeah, yeah. That's what gets him in trouble, I think, is that last part. Because at first they're all apologetic. Yeah. And when he says that, that's when they get pissed because they know he's right. Yeah, well. Then Charles Wallace flips the table. Just so you know, these are two adults who feel like they have to lash back out at a six-year-old because he outsmarted them. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, dude. Well, he's like a genius. You've just double yeah. lost in that situation. So Scathing indictment of our education system. Yeah. Six-year-old genius, uh, yeah, probably cannot wit. 30-something teachers. Yeah. <laughs> See, but this is what I like about this movie, because it highlights the inherent flaws of our education system, where kids are just expected to be little repositories of repeated information, and once they show any kind of independent thought or autonomy, that's when the systems in place try to push them back down and tamp them back down and be like, no, no, actually, I'm not wrong, you're wrong. And I say this as somebody who once in elementary school had to correct my principal about the pronunciation of my last name and got in trouble for it. You also questioned the system and wondered why you had to have so much homework in the first place. And then they put you in uh, special ed. Yeah. There was a time where I, I told my biology teacher that North American opossums were marsupials. And she said no. And I was like, well... What do you mean, no? It's not an opinion. 
<laughs> She's like, actually, that's not the way I learned it. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean? No, it's true. It is true. You can Google it right now. <laughs> now, this is not me shitting on educators. This no. is me shitting on our education system. Right. right. Very different. Our educators are overworked, underpaid heroes, as far as I'm concerned. But there are issues that I've found, even within higher education, where people who are tasked with teaching even college-level courses don't necessarily see their own inherent biases for the education system. Right. And they may see themselves as being outside of a hierarchical structure when actually they are replicating a lot of the biases that come with having a position of power when it comes to educating other people. And it's true even for anthropology professors, even though they like spend most of their academic academic time like studying culture and questioning power structures. They still have a kind of a blind bias about academia. So I guess the idea is don't always assume you know everything. It's safer that way. The more you know, the more you question. But I want to rein it back in about Meg and Charles Wallace, right? Yes. So that, uh, basically, that scene set up the dynamic throughout most of the film. Meg is dealing with a lot of her emotional issues and her past traumas, while Charles Wallace is trying his best to be supportive to her and standing up to others in her behalf. Yeah, it's pretty great. He's like a shining light in her life. Yeah. And she appreciates him. Yeah. That's true. And someone throughout the film who really is down on Meg the entire time is Miss What's-It. Yeah. Miss Dingus, as Chelsea (laughs) said. Reese Witherspoon, right? (laughs) Miss What's-It. Is constantly saying to Charles Let, Wallace. Let's not besmirch the fine name of beloved actress Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. This is all Miss Watson's problem. This is Miss Watson. She is constantly saying to Charles Wallace, like, oh, she doesn't have what it takes. This one has some darkness around her, right? Yeah. Constantly saying it with Meg standing right there, yeah. right? Oh, this traumatized child, she's never going to be okay. She's just, it's yeah, like, she's like saying she'll never be happy enough to be a warrior of the light. Yeah, she, it's like, how do you expect her to ever improve if you're shit-talking her right next to her? Yeah, it's true. Children often live up to the expectations that others put on them. Yeah, it's true. She She doesn't trust Meg. She doesn't think that she's capable. She doesn't want to be around Meg, and she's rude to her also. Not even friendly to Meg, right? Yeah. And then at the near the end, she says, I give you the gift of your flaws. That is not the same character, my homie, my home dog. Yes, good point. Unless she was like just kind of using it as a way to test or challenge Meg the whole time, but it really didn't pay off because it didn't seem like that's what she was doing. No. No, but it's a great point because when Meg says to Miss What's It, but that's not a strength. Or something like that. Miss Woods is like, oh, really? It's not? Yeah. Like, implying that her flaws or her faults, as she says, should actually be a benefit. But, yeah, the whole time, Miss Watson is just shitting on poor Meg. Now, let's look at what they show are her faults. 
Because I think we would learn a lot from that. Uh, yeah. One thing that we know off the bat is that one of them is her skepticism. Yes. And I think that's a dangerous thing um, to put in a message in a movie for kids, that skepticism is a fault. I agree. They're saying that your faults or flaws can be adaptive or beneficial in like certain situations, but that most of the time it's like socially maladaptive. But I don't think having a healthy skepticism is maladaptive. No. In it, like most cases, it's the other way around. It's true. One of the issues with the way they approach things like that is the way that they just make a lot of broad sweeping claims like that. When in reality, it's very nuanced and every claim they make should have a very in-depth, like it's the happy medium when it comes to skepticism, right? Yeah. Now, I want to give the movie a little bit of a, no, I'm not going to give it a pass. I'm going to give it a little bit of a break because it is a kid's movie. Explicitly. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Okay. And it's trying to, I would say, transmit some fairly big ideas in a kid's movie. That being said, maybe it's more subtle that one of Meg's flaws is her skepticism and Miss What's It Says, your flaws are actually kind of your strengths. Because Meg doesn't take at face value what she sees when she gets to Camazots and as they get closer to the it. Yeah. She does use her skepticism with kind of tempered by what she knows. She's a very bright kid and she's able to like use she, she knows when to use the glasses to see through the illusion of what's presented to her well, that, and find her way to her father. That's another point where she says, oh, I should use my faults. And it's like her seeing beyond what is presented to her, being perceptive. And that's not a fault either. Right. Yeah. So, so I think the message, as intended, maybe it does not do a great job of pulling this off. Right, executing it. But I think the intention is people tell you your skepticism is bad, but actually it's going to be how you solve a lot of your problems. With having a scientific mind, wanting evidence. At the same time, she is the only one who believes that her father's still alive out there. Or like, didn't just disappear the way that, you know, dad's going out to get a pack of smokes might. She still holds out hope of seeing him again. And, I mean, Jamie, you could be right. That could be what they were going for, like, actually showing that those aren't really faults. Uh, and that just some people will tell you that they are because it can be inconvenient. But at the same time, like, I don't know if they really communicated it effectively sure. in the movie. Yeah, I think this is part of the greater theme of the all-in-one that they say in this movie a lot. Where it's taking the macro scale, like, perspective that Chris Pine father has in this, right? Where Papa Chris, we call him. They, they use the same analogy, like, twice in the film, or, like, just f- turn a phrase where it's like, oh, think about every chain reaction that had to happen since the beginning of the universe to get to make pr- you, right? Yeah. When, Pretty miraculous. When Mrs. Witch is talking to Meg, yeah. Yeah, but also Chris Pine, father, is saying that to her at the beginning oh, of the yeah, film. yeah, that's right. So it's like the idea of the whole universe making you for, like, the perfect person that you are and then accepting your flaws as part of who you are is sort of that, like, 
everything on the larger scale is reflected on the smaller scale, right? That's part of the kind of entwined theme package yeah. <laughs> that I identified that's kind of like love, family, and trust, mm-hmm. and, and kind of about like all encompassed in hope, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like when they're showing the ideals of the light or the dark in this movie, the forces of good and bad, they're showing people and like their emotions and how it's manifesting in them and how it comes through people. And how people, when they're feeling that, perpetuate it on others. Yeah. And so they're dealing with like literal darkness and literal beings of light on this grand universe ending scale, which I always sort of get lost in plots that are that big because they're not very grounded. But in a way they are grounded because the conflicts they are dealing with are actually really more like philosophical conflicts they're conquering throughout the film, which is neat. Yeah. It's sort of like a martial arts movie in that way, I think. Oh, yeah. Just the idea that like mastering your philosophy is actually what's going to help you win the conflict. (laughs) Right. That's true. But yeah, I wanted to say about... The inconvenience of Meg's attributes. Yes. What people tell her are flaws. And I think Jamie could be right. It could be that they were trying to communicate that they're not really flaws. But yeah. it's just that people tell her they are. Uh, let's look at what they are. It's skepticism, intelligence, combined with creativity, and being perceptive. Yeah. And... Those are all things that would contribute to her being non-conforming mm-hmm. and difficult to control. So it makes sense that in a educational environment, she may not do well. Yeah. Sure. Because it's all about conformity and controlling people's behavior and minds. And I also think it's telling that like, when they get to Kamazot, one of the first things they see that is... At first comfortable, but soon becomes alarming to them, is the conformity of the suburb. Yeah. And I actually feel like they could have, like the film could have done more to lean into its explicit messaging. I think that in a lot of weird ways, this movie is too subtle for a kid's movie. Yeah. Because it's trying to say like something about like, okay, the suburbs seem bright and nice or whatever, but there's this underlying darkness there. And that's really, like, we see just that for just a minute in the suburb scene with the archetypal, like, Stepford mother offering the kids food. And all the kids are just bouncing a ball mindlessly and all the houses look the same. Yeah. Yeah. But it at first it seems maybe comforting to Calvin and he's like, oh, I'd love some food. But Meg has to say, no, this is, like, not a safe place. I, I think that, you know, you look at classic, I'm going to say, like, horror movies, like Halloween, that are critiquing this suburban lifestyle and kind of showing that things on the surface might seem nice and peaceful, but there's always this kind of lurking... Sinister. Sinister, or or at the very least, that conformity is going to be unsatisfying well for people it seems at first like it might be gratifying and satiate some needs and 
just would make things a little easier in general. But then you kind of realize that it's actually dangerous and sinister, like you said, Jamie, because under the surface, it's just soul crushing. Yeah, I mean, I think that the next scene after the suburban imagery is on the beach and Michael Pena's character is giving them food. This is the second time they've been offered food. Mm-hmm. Meg, I believe, has already been told that they shouldn't eat eat in camisots, but they're on this journey. They've been gone for a long time. The kids are getting hungry. So they are eating these sandwiches, and Calvin is like, oh, this food is great. Like, this sandwich is awesome. Meanwhile, Charles Wallace is like, this is sand. Like, there's sand in my mouth. There's there's no sustenance in what you're giving me. Right. And it's, like, there's this messaging about how conformity isn't going to give you happiness. Falling in line with what's expected of you, for some people, might be okay. And you might be like, okay, yeah, I can slot into this more easily and kind of get by by living my life to other people's standards. But somebody like Charles Wallace, who is more of a thinker, is able to see through the illusion and he tastes the food for what it is, which is just sand, which doesn't actually have any nutritional value. I feel like it's more like Charles Wallace does try it, but then realizes it's not for him because there is no real sustenance in it, like you said. So it's just slightly different catalysts. Like, he has... Healthy boundaries. (laughs) Where Calvin, the filthy extrovert, does not. I do think it's funny the way you phrase that, because Calvin is the one who's sort of like more optimistic and accepting of things. It's funny because Charles Wallace kind of is optimistic, but Calvin is not the thinker. Calvin is the heart. Well, Charles Wallace says you're a great diplomat. Yeah. Yeah. But... When you were talking about conformity in the in the form of living up to people's expectations, that's his tragic backstory in the film. Yes, trying thank to you. meet his dad's unreasonable expectations. Calvin's, Calvin's tragic backstory. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. We get a flash earlier where Calvin is being harassed, attacked verbally by his father for getting, I think, a B minus. Yeah, on a test, and they're. Are they elementary, maybe middle school kids? Uh, he and Meg are middle school. Eighth grade. I, think. I mean, my parents would have been thrilled if I was pulling in B minuses in middle school. <laughs> B stands for not bad. <laughs> and in college, they say C's get degrees, but I was a 4.0 student, so. There you go. I was a 4.0 student in middle school. And, and that made you happy, right? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was more like I just felt like I had to perform. Right. But let's uh, let's take a second to appreciate Calvin when it comes to that relationship with his father. There's a scene where Calvin and Meg are in Meg's backyard. Yeah. Yes. And uh, Calvin took a second when they were having a conversation to confide in Meg and be like, oh, yeah, my life isn't really perfect. You know, I have to meet a lot of expectations. Like my father is kind of rough on me with his expectations. And Meg is just like, at least you have a father, right? Which completely shuts down his like 
his openness, but he doesn't. That's some fucking Twitter level discourse too. He apologizes, and like it shuts down the conversation. Like he might have opened up to her more about what he deals with, but it just totally shut down that sharing moment. And he's he's a good guy, mm-hmm. so yeah. he like instantly turns it around. Yeah, he apologizes. He starts trying to talk to her about her thing, right? Yeah, which is but his very nice. his issues are valid too. It's true, but she's so consumed with her own stuff that she can't her own pain and grief. She can't focus on his. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's so bad for her the trauma of losing her father and her own needs. She wants to fulfill those so much that she can't look outside of herself. That's right. Also, with the age that she is, it kind of makes sense. Because um, even though kids around 9 or 10 cognitively start to be able to think outside of themselves a little bit more. Yeah. uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I know adults who pull the same, like comparative trauma shit where it's like if you're trying to tell them like oh i had a difficult experience with something they're like oh yeah you think you had a difficult experience well here's my experience that's clearly so much worse it's like i'm not trying to have a contest with you about who's had worse trauma (laughs) yeah sometimes people don't grow out of this but especially most children still into their teenage years have a difficult time empathizing with others yeah you kind of Kind of learn to show empathy and feel it. Most people would, anyway. Yeah, you start around sixteen, is what I the number that I heard recently. Yeah, and I heard you don't finish developing the idea of thinking what the consequences of your actions are going to be until you're twenty four. It's true. I'm not even twenty four, <laughs> <laughs> and you never think about consequences. That's a frontal lobe. Yeah, um, lobe function and. Uh, yeah, your brain is still developing in that area until you're 24, 25. Yeah. So it's true. <laughs> science. <laughs> this movie's all about science. Oh, you're right. And fantasy. <laughs> science fantasy? Wait, we have a month of that coming up. Next month. This was a perfect segue, then. Yeah. Now, I want to quickly jump back to that beach scene that we were talking about. Because you mentioned... That's the scene where Charles Wallace gets taken over by the darkness. Yes, yes it's a little confusing. I would venture far enough to ask, what the fuck? <laughs> it's true. It doesn't make any sense. He sees through the illusion, like you guys were talking about, knows that it's sand. Michael Pena's character did kind of respond to Charles Wallace. He was like, oh, yeah, you're pretty perceptive. You can see through that, huh? Like, ah, he, his he, honeyed words. Yeah, <laughs> he drops the facade. He does try to pump up Charles Wallace's ego at that point and tries to say, you're better than other people. You should join me because we could be great together. I think he, like, kind of lures him to the dark side. Okay, yeah, I can see that. By appealing to his ego. He's like, not this dummy, dumb, dumb Calvin who eats sand sandwiches and likes them. (laughs) (laughs) This movie really hates people who are nice. That could be it, you guys. (laughs) That could be the mechanism by which it happens, but it's a little shaky even so. Yeah, if they were trying to push that he's a prideful character... It was too subtle yeah. for adults. 
Yeah, and it they didn't establish it whatsoever. It wasn't even subtle. It just wasn't there. I think it, <laughs> I think it was really just that they needed to get to the ending where Meg uses the power of love to get Charles Wallace to break the mind spell. Basically. Yeah, I mean that does happen in the book too. But it just yeah the the lead up to it. I, I again I feel like this movie is way too subtle for a kids movie and i wonder if that has something to do with why it didn't succeed as a at the box office because i think a lot of this stuff is too big for kids i want to specify that this is young adult not like little children yeah that it, this this book is a young adult book even still like we were just talking about like when you start to like develop empathy and start to understand like concepts about like kind of understanding consequences and stuff. This movie is trying to be a story for young adults, but it is convoluted even for adults. Yeah. Yeah. I think when it comes to Charles Wallace being the one, the, uh, the, the darkness takes, right. Uh, it's because they don't really want Charles Wallace. They want Meg. And in right. the end that they keep saying that explicitly like, oh, we want you. That's what we care about. Right. Because Meg is the character that has been struggling with the darkness the entire film. Right. You'd think that Charles Wallace would be a more valuable figure to take because he's such a being of light. Yeah. But. If Meg is a person of darkness, why you'd think she would be a lot easier to corrupt? I think that it's more that she's supposed to be this like amazing mind. But honestly, this movie does a lot more tell than it does show. Yeah. It just kind of says, like, Meg's a genius. She's not living up to her potential. But, like, we kind of get little bits of it. But the movie never really pulls the trigger with us saying, like, oh, here's why Meg has got some next level thinking. It's just like, oh, she understands what her dad did. What was that? Well, we don't have time for that. Oh, she does have a few moments that are pretty clutch with, like, the tornado, and she maps out how to get flung sure. by it at just the right angle and stuff, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's very smart when it comes to movie and scripting. she kind of rolls it off her back or whatever, uh, just, like, shakes it off when... Calvin tries to give her a compliment about that. She's like, oh, it's just basic physics. He's like, it was amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, a charismatic character with no intelligence score to speak of. Emotional intelligence, Jamie. I, I'm, again, I'm talking about how the film is portraying these characters. Okay, that's fair. I think that Calvin gets the short shrift in this movie yeah. in a lot of you ways. You do? I do, yeah. Oh, really? I I think that they kind of portray him as being like a lovable idiot, and I think that he deserves more than that. <laughs> huh. You know, uh, I'm sure you, you're right. I didn't pick up on that. On the idiot part. He I, also just kind of disappears at some point. He's definitely a little bit of a side character. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's fine. I, yeah. I, if anything, I think this movie does a pretty good job of focusing on characters who don't always get the spotlight yeah now here's the thing about calvin though i always feel like they treat him as a valuable person that's fair. even if they don't treat him as smart they're uh they're always like you're necessary to the group yeah <laughs> sure yeah Char uh charles wallace 
calls it out. He's like, he's important to bring with us. He's a diplomat. We're going to need him. Maybe that's my problem. They say that at the beginning of the movie, but he doesn't really do anything. Yeah, he never super... There's never, like, a conflict he needs to diffuse or anything. Like, like I would have rather that they just cut the character. There would have been an easy place in the movie for them to show this when Meg is getting bullied by Vic Veronica yeah. on the playground. He's right there and watching and, like, seem to approve of Meg's violence. <laughs> he should have, instead of that... that I didn't even think about that. That's such a huge... Like, mischaracterization of the character who's supposed to be the diplomat. This is an American film, though. Fair. But, so, he, if he's a, such a great diplomat, he should have stepped in and diffused the situation. I think that would have been much better. But then again, I guess they were trying to set up the Meg getting sent home, problem child storyline. I'll tell you what, also. For those of you who haven't seen the movie... Calvin is coded like a romance novel Adonis. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of is. He has the personality of a supportive adult man. It's true. A very emotionally healthy, supportive adult man. Uh, the character, like, male... Uh, the, the cinematography, like, male gazes him a few times, I think. Female gazes? Fe- sure. Well, just like, it, it like... When they get flung by the tree stump in the tornado, right? Mm-hmm. It comes out. He, like, gives her that compliment and she, like, shrugs it off. And then the camera, like, slowly pans over him with this, like, haughty look. And then he walks, like, right up in her personal space. Is like, no, you're really special. <laughs> and it's just like... Whoa. I was just uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, whoa. It was is- kind of like a romance novel moment. And at... They're just, like, kind of young. Yeah. And so I was, like... I felt uncomfortable during that scene. I know. I was like, whoa, this is really forward for a middle schooler. And it's yeah. just a little... It's just a little strange, the coding of it. Yeah. Hey, want me to carry your books? It felt a little too <laughs> mature is just the thing I mean to say. Even though middle school kids are direct... Yeah. They, they are without class. I don't think that... I've never seen a middle schooler, based on personal experience, that acts like Calvin. They're without refinement. Yes, exactly. Now, I, I, I've mentioned this a few times in other conversations, right? Mo- like, sort of, a lot of pop songs that are horny, right? People are like, oh, that's crass, right? Like, uh, like Talk Dirty by uh, Jason Derulo, right? Beloved actor of Cats 2019. Oh, it always comes back to Cats with you, yeah. yeah. But people are like, oh, that's inappropriate, right? That's crass. But then you put on, like, Marvin Gaye for your boomer parents or Al Green, and they're like, oh, it's so romantic. Yeah, right? that's <laughs> fair. That's the, uh, that's the energy that Calvin brings yeah. in this movie. You're right. And also, I'm glad you mentioned pop music, because this movie has so many fucking needle drops exactly. that I do not feel are earned at all that don't forward the plot in any way that I think are literally just there so they're like we need popular music I, I don't know we're, are these even songs that were no popular in 2018 I think I'm just an easy mark because the <laughs> one that you complained the most about in the server room I was actually like oh this is a great moment <laughs> Chelsea's like this is a bomb that's funny <laughs> No, but that's my point is just like it doesn't feel like they add anything. I know this could just be my 
elder millennial brain. Like, I don't know any of these songs. I haven't listened to the radio willingly in <laughs> 10 years. Like, I I listen to, I would say, a diverse uh, selection of music, but it is very specifically indie metal adjacent yeah. for the most part. Yeah. So I don't know if these songs in this movie were popular songs that the studios like were. you got to put them in the movie or if they were selected to fit a mood that I feel like it doesn't work because it feels really out of place. These are like non-diegetic needle drops just like music in the background of the scene that I actually feel like distracts from what's happening on screen. Whenever that happened, I was so taken out of the moments. I was just like, couldn't we just have a nice score right. instead? Cinematic score. Yeah, because they just, I don't feel like they added anything. And to me, they just made me like stop seeing what was on screen oh, in a way. that's not good. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite of what they were trying to go for. Probably. Exactly. That's right. But uh, thank you, Jack, for confirming that they weren't popular songs at the time. Yeah, Chelsea and I would never know that. I have yeah, no idea Jack what these songs are. Jack is our cultural broker here for the youths. <laughs> there are That's what's popular music, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You're Gen Z? That's right. I think so. Something. Basically, <laughs> effectively, culturally, yes, basically. Yeah. So the some of the musicians whose music were in the movie include um, the final song by uh, Demi Lovato and DJ Khaled. Oh, my uh, God. Sia? Yeah, I like Sia. Uh, Chloe X. Haley? I mean, these are all famous musicians. Saudi? Sade? Saudi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sade? Oh, Sade. I I don't know any of the... I I have seen um, DJ Khaled on some kind of... Television program and memes, yeah. Jamie, I actually do know Sade. I didn't recognize her voice, but I know about Sade because she is a famous smooth jazz performer and singer. Okay, and my dad loves smooth jazz, and I so I grew up listening to that. That's funny. (laughs) She's like always Mm -hmm. on the radio stations where uh, that that music gets played. That's pretty good. Yeah. Now, and I, I'm so I want to make it clear. I'm not just saying I don't like this music or anything. That has nothing to do with it. The music, I think, sounded fine. I've seen plenty of movies where there's a needle drop where I don't know the song, but it doesn't take me out of the moment the way that it did in this film. Oh, interesting. I just think that this was, for me personally, not great choices about what songs to use where because I was sitting there going like, what does this have to do with what I'm seeing on screen? Oh, that is so often a problem in the movie industry, you know? Songs will often just get chosen for some of the lyrics that are in it, but the overall message of the song has nothing to do with what's going on in the movie. Yeah. And- like, <laughs> like he, and I will, like, tell on myself, like, in Captain Marvel, when... Carol is like starts kicking ass and they play just a girl by no doubt. I actually like that scene. And I know a lot of people do not like that, but like in this movie, I found these to be really distracting. Yeah. That's just what I wanted to kind of make maybe, emphasize. Maybe you have to be a tween to appreciate it. Maybe that's fine. So to rein it back a little bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> there were, there was a scene that also rubbed me a little the wrong way. 
And it was the happy medium, right? Okay. Okay. Right before they went in to talk to the happy medium, uh, Mrs. When? Mrs. Witch. Oprah Winfrey. Yes. Mrs. Winfrey, if you will. Is another W. (laughs) The most powerful W. Yes. It's the second time that Meg is told the entire universe has led up to the way it is right now, and that includes your place in it, and that's why you're beautiful, because you were meant to happen right now, right? Yeah, I didn't care for this philosophy either. Well, I mean, well, it wasn't the, the like, you're the protagonist or anything of the universe. It's kind of like they could say that about anybody, right? It's true, yeah. But that it means that everybody's important. It's kind of like all life is sacred kind of argument. Exactly. But it also is an argument for, like... Not celestial in, determinism, or yeah, something? right for not striving for change. I was thinking it's the uh, it's part of the all in one, infinite in one theme that I was mentioning earlier. Okay, and uh, so she's basically saying like you are you are a miracle for just existing, right? Yeah. So celebrate yourself, basically, and that's a great theme. I think that's good. Yeah, but it's almost instantly undone. In my mind, when they go to visit the happy medium, someone similar to themselves, who's supposed to be this, like, enlightened figure that's going to help the party find the father figure. Who seeks to, like, find balance in all things. Yeah. When he's talking to Meg one-on-one because she's having trouble, like, getting a grip on the ideals that he's pushing. Yes. He's, like, like, striving for balance and, like, looking inside to be able to find her father. He like, yeah, he bends over to her and is like, look, you don't want to end up like me, some sad guy in a cave all by, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I did not like that either. The film was just pushing the idea that you should like, think that you are beautiful. And with other themes in the film, like your flaws make you, you're unique, right? Well, they, they were trying to use him as like a comedic break character and it didn't, And you know what, Jack, your point, I love it because it goes back to a complaint I had earlier about like comparative trauma. Yes. It's like, it's actually reifying this idea that like, oh, like you, like you think you've got it bad. Meg has got it worse than anybody else in the world because her dad went missing four years ago. And even this like celestial being of enlightenment knows that he's like, you know, doesn't want Meg to feel like she has it worse than him. Yeah. It was just a really messy scene. Yeah. And also, he's like, you'd better improve or you're going to get fucked up. That's also motivating with, like, fear. Which is something that the movie is also trying not to push because fear is of camisots and darkness. Yeah, Yeah. like fear and avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that you should run from something as as a way to improve yourself does not feel like it should be one of the messages of the film. Yeah, and not a change that would necessarily be long-lasting. It's true. And this enlightened figure having, like, shitty self-esteem i'm like i don't know i just don't that doesn't feel right to me yeah he should be completely content with who he is yeah i don't even get the sense that he really felt like that about himself it was almost like he was just trying to relate to this moody tween and like <laughs> maybe that is it. see himself how she might see him maybe yeah uh but 
even then it doesn't reinforce the message that Mrs. Witch was trying to tell her. No. Yeah, that just that character, I get it. Zach Galifianakis is like a fun a fun fella, a fun character, but like uh, it, it sort of muddied a lot of what I w- what they were trying to push from my perception. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that. the philosophy is pretty uneven in this film. Yes, certainly. Also, yeah, I know we talked about it earlier, but when Miss What's It was like uh, talking to Meg after they beat the Dark Brain, and Meg was like, "You were right, Miss What's It. I used my flaws." And Miss What's It is like, "In such beautiful flaws." I'm like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> <laughs> She's just revisionist history for Meg. Like, I always believed in you, Meg. Like, no, you <laughs> literally fucking didn't. If you, if that's true, then the way she treated her throughout the movie it makes it even worse. It's like it gaslighting. Does. I hated it. Yeah, yeah. or nagging, or yeah. basically the same thing, and yeah. it's like, you were You just, just needed me to be hard on you. That's you all you needed. Needed me to manipulate you through emotional abuse and bullying, and that made you better. It's like, yeah. what the fuck are they trying to say here? See, all your participation trophies have actually done you a disservice, but me giving you some harsh realism... No, oh my God. <laughs> the most damaging words you can say to a person in the English language are good job. Oh, God. That's from Whiplash. <laughs> but, uh, is that Omni-Man? Yes, it is oh, Omni-Man. Boy. But yeah, just the messages are pretty darn conflicted in this movie. And a lot of them are good, but they're just so messy. Yeah. yeah. The negative messages kind of end up overshadowing the positive ones yeah and they they loosely define what the darkness is it's like oh it's anger and it's fear and stuff like that but they don't define what the light is i like they sort of say the vibration of tesseracting is love and yeah it, but they also don't define love no you're right and yeah, tessing or whatever tessering yeah, yeah whatever tessering. some bullshit and we gotta talk about how this movie was written by the same author who wrote Frozen. And in Frozen, we have a lot of unearned story points. Yes, so like, many. When Hans turns out to be a bad guy. Just out of nowhere. Out of nowhere later in the movie. Or like the trolls are supposed to be love gurus, but they're actually just like... <laughs> fucking villains. Stockholm Syndrome inducing like... They're love bombers. Yeah. Or, like, basically manipulative and don't understand humans at all. Yeah. Or how love works at all. They're just like, oh, you're two attractive people. That means you should be together. So, are, do you, do, from your recollection, having read the book of A Wrinkle in Time, how much of this is a relic of Jennifer Lee's writing style and how much of it is based on the original? I get the impression that the mixed messaging is a product of the screenplay. Okay. And there are actually characters that were left out that change the dynamic between all of the characters. Also, Meg in the books is portrayed as being skeptical, but not so antisocial. Yeah, that seems like more of a modern character, like, for modern audiences. Yeah. 
So yeah, the the book is definitely more streamlined in its messaging, and it's actually even more obvious that it has mainly Western religious philosophy influences. And Jack, you were saying that the movie kind of differs from that. The movie felt like it, well, we know that the writer of the novel was uh, very into Christianity and Eastern philosophies. So those definitely shown through in the movie in very positive ways. Like they were shown in a very positive light. Miss Who quotes Rumi and the Buddha. And I think she quotes scripture at one point. I think so. Yeah. And it's like, oh, those are all good And Shakespeare things. twice. Yeah. And uh, those are all like portrayed as good things. And then we only in the movie, we only get one reference to Native American folklore. But, you know, the dark planet is called Kamazots, which is like the Mayan bat face of night. And like, effectively, uh, we would understand it as like a god, but it's more like the face of night and sacrifice and dark things. Yeah, that was a weird choice to make the evil place have a name of a native deity, effectively. Now... The way I like to hope that this went is the uh, the writer is like, oh, I want to represent spiritualities from around the world, so I'll include Native American spiritualities. And uh the only issue is villainizing it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't exactly, like, even if Kamazots, who I'm not very familiar with, even if that character is villainous, Picking that one, I'm like, mm, it's a little iffy by not putting in a positive Native American character. Yeah, I mean, they could have just called it, like, Planet Satan or something. I mean, <laughs> well, that, but that's what I'm saying. They have good references to, like, Christian mythology. So it would be okay if they put in a negative one, right? Yeah. Infernax. Yeah. Wait, no, that's the game that just came out. Uh, Infernum would be a great planet name. Heck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. So I think you're right, Jack. Um, I think this is a relic of the original novel hmm. where they do a disservice to both the ideas of light and dark and the dichotomy between them. Yeah. To where the darkness is kind of portrayed as like all bad and light is portrayed as all good where that dichotomy is a very western religion idea um but other religions and traditions have more of a spectrum yeah yeah the fact that they try to introduce some eastern philosophy feels like it really doesn't mesh with the light good dark bad messaging of the film and unfortunately we do still see this being used in the rhetoric of other re-emerging traditions like pan shamanism in the U.S., um, it's kind of full of these dichotomies, and it makes me feel like I don't fit in that space. But um, I feel like I just need to vocalize my opinions more. Um, but just that's kind of like the non-conforming thing that they're trying to encourage in this movie. But it can be hard when you feel like you're the only one who notices it. But maybe sometimes it's good to be kind of a little bit more like Charles Wallace. Yeah, when no one <laughs> else is saying it, the one voice can be heard yeah. very clearly. So it's good to talk, speak up against it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is a movie that has some decent messaging buried under its uneven execution. 
And if it's using Eastern philosophy and concepts of light and dark, I'm really shocked that the yin-yang wasn't made present in this. The literal symbol talking about light and dark morality in Eastern philosophy, which is saying that there's dark in the light and light in the dark, right? Right. Which is... You can't have one without the other. They're encompassed in both. Encompassed and folded. Exactly. And it fits in line with the themes of this movie so much. Like the idea of your flaws or something good about yourself. Yes. And if a person is like the micro version of the universe, then the dark in the universe should be like the flaws of the universe, which they celebrate in the individual person. So why don't they find a way to accept it on the macro scale? Wow, Jack, you're blowing my mind. Because it's like, what the, what are you doing? You're saying it's okay for a person to be like this, but not for the universe. But you're saying the person is a reflection of the universe. And you would There's ex- just a microcosm of the macro. And yes. you would expect a warrior of balance, which I like that they have this character, but he's portrayed as a being of light. But he's supposed to be a being of balance, and it's not portrayed well. And you would think he would be the one to kind of hold these values that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And a way they could have really better addressed this is that it's like we were saying earlier. They're using fear to push you into, like, a more healthy mindset. Like, look how fucking awful and monstrous the darkness is, right? And this is... Thank you for saying this, Jack. You perfectly articulated something that was kicking around in my brain and I was like having trouble with this is the kind of thing I was talking about where they do a disservice to the beings of light and dark. Yeah. The beings of light are just manipulating people and using fear tactics and gaslighting to try to get them to like, quote unquote, improve themselves or progress as an individual. Mm. And I was half expecting the misses to turn out to be evil because they were kind of sinister in their portrayal. Seriously, they're supposed to be pure beings of light, but they have darkness in them, too. Yeah. And they make mistakes. It's true. They, and they manipulate people. We're taking this story down, guys. And <laughs> let's look specifically at what they do say that the darkness is, right? It's anger. But they're, just to talk about, like, Rumi, right, who Miss Who quotes, Rumi says that anger shows you what's wrong in the world. Anger is a way to identify some wrongdoing, something that isn't right. And I've also heard another philosophy through therapy that anger isn't, like, a bad or negative emotion like people always kind of make it out to be. When you can channel it correctly... It can spur you to action and creativity. Yeah. I don't know. I've heard that anger leads to suffering and suffering leads to hate. Anakin is also a being of balance. <laughs> oh, boy. He brought balance to the force. Oh, wow. That's true, because when you have a, a being of the light side, you have to have an equal being of the dark side. Yeah. It is balance. But... Yeah, it's just like anger can be used in that positive way as, if nothing else, just a way to show you when something bad is happening, when something wrong is happening. And like sadness has its place. Yeah. You have to experience that to be a full person. You've got to feel your feelings. Yeah. If they're saying that darkness is part of the human emotional spectrum. Yes. Then... If you're going to accept every part of yourself, you have to accept darkness, and they only vilify it in this movie instead of working with it. If this movie were really going to embrace these ideals, I would feel like Meg should have found some way to be at peace with I think that would have been a better ending, yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's just I, I haven't put too much thought into how this movie should have gone, but I can definitely say that it it's just very inconsistent in its portrayal of these differing moralities. Yeah. It's true. And it ends up being pretty disappointing. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, on that note, I think it's probably time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature of the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 Tesseracts? Why, yes I do. Thank you for asking. I'll say, this movie, though very, like, all over the place, did have quite a few epic moments and features in my eyes. I think I'm going to have to give the epic feature to Meg. Oh, wow. Not Chris Pine, though I love him. I was going to (laughs) say. Though I love him so much. uh, I think Meg was such a cool character. Yeah. Just, she was smart. And I like that a lot of characters, like Calvin, I like Calvin a lot. But Calvin felt sort of like a to me, unnatural. Meg, to me, felt kind of natural. With the th- the ways she dealt with her trauma and the ways she had problems with society trying to control her, like when she threw that ball at Veronica's face and her mom is like, you have to write her an apology letter, right? And Meg is like, what? No way, man. And I, I just thought that was like a really realistic interaction just the way she interacted with people like when her principal tried to reach out and talk with her it's sort he was condescending to her at times Mm -hmm. and uh he was trying his best to be supportive but at one point it just became too much and she just left the room without caring about the consequences and i just thought the way she wanted to get better throughout the film working with the mrs w's and like trying to improve and get through everything she's gone through, holding on to hope despite these years of like bitter development. She went through a really cool amount of emotions and just character development. And uh, the themes were muddied a lot, but just her as a character I thought was badass. So epic, epic Meg. Nice. I'm glad that you gave her that highlight. Well yeah. said. And, uh, when it comes to a rating for this film, what am I rating it out of wrinkles? <laughs> tesseracts. Tesseracts, that's right. I'm going to give this movie 5 out of 10 Tesseracts. I think it's a probably middle-of-the-line movie, pretty sta- pretty average, but not because it was like just sort of meh the whole time. I think it had lots of high highs and low lows. The highs are the characters. The characters are all very defined, kind of nuanced, very interesting. I liked every single one of them. And uh, the hijinks and the whimsy were executed (laughs) so sloppily and the themes were so messy that I went from seeing scenes that are like, wow, I love this to scenes being like, wow, this repulses me. (laughs) I have a natural aversion to this. Yeah, so I'm probably... 
I would be comfortable only watching this movie once. I'm probably going to see it one or two more times. I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. It was okay. That sounds like a happy medium to me. Yes, it does. Oh, my God. All right, Chelsea. What's your epic moment or feature, and then you're rating from 1 to 10 Tesseracts? My epic feature is the Doctor's Murray. Oh, yes. Yes. Alex and Kate. That's a good feature. I like how they love each other so much and they work well together and they like working on projects together. Yes, that was awesome. I think that's so great. And it's not like they have the same interests or they're carbon copies of one another. They have different focuses and strengths and weaknesses and they complement each other well. And I just like seeing that because Jamie and I are kind of like that. They're like best friends who got married, but with sex. And, uh... (laughs) (laughs) Wait. (laughs) And, um, it's great. (laughs) So, yeah, I think I look up to that. (laughs) The sex wasn't portrayed in the movie. No. But it could have used it. Unfortunately. Yeah. So... Um, I'm going to give this movie a 6 out of 10 Tesseracts. Nice. It had um, some good messages in there that were overshadowed mm-hmm. by the shoddy execution and the confusing script. And I don't know if that was the scriptwriter's fault or if there were other cooks in the kitchen that Messed up that pie. Whatever. This analogy is getting away from me. <laughs> now but, the cooks are making it, but not the bakers. Right. That's the problem right there. you got to get your bakers to make your pie, not your cooks. Your cooks should be making dinner. <laughs> Two in the oven is teach a man to fish. Yeah. For such a big budget film, I feel like the CGI is kind of lackluster in some parts and somewhat confusing. And then um, the pacing is also poor. Like, they luxuriate too long on some areas and don't elucidate enough about other plot points. Something got cut that would have made this make a little bit more sense. Agreed. Um, So, yeah, 6 out of 10. That's my final offer. Fair enough. But what about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of 1 to 10 Tesseracts? Yeah, why don't you tell us, Jamie? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think my epic feature of this film is going to be Charles Wallace. What a great yeah. little guy. Oh, this this kid's got charisma. He's got wit. I really like his kind of dauntless uh, enthusiasm. I like the way he stands up for Meg. He's just a young kid, right? Yeah. But, like, when he hears somebody shit-talking his sister, he's not going to put up with that, especially, like, unfairly from teachers he just ruins their whole day and he stands up to the man yeah he fucking ruins their day and i appreciate that he stands up to the man he's six years old he's bold he's friends with goddesses yeah what's not to like about charles wallace 
And this way we have the whole family and um, any other characters that don't get mentioned, I guess they weren't important. <laughs> oh, poor Calvin. <laughs> they just feel like they should have cut the character if they weren't going to have his diplomacy matter in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. He was the dream boat for all the <laughs> middle school audience. Oh, I guess. God. But... All that being said, I think I'm going to give this movie four out of ten Tesseracts. We average a five! <laughs> you are such a nerd. <laughs> Perfectly balanced. <laughs> um, I wrote in my notes that this was basically psychedelia for tweens. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's trying to... Let's eat a lot of sugar and then watch. <laughs> Seriously. Actually, no, they'd probably have drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Kids these days and their illicit substances. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it just like it used. It tried to use the visual language of psychedelic filmmaking, but it's a story for younger kids. It's not off the wall enough to be like Yellow Submarine, right? But it's not clear cut enough to be. Like, a kid's movie like Frozen or, like, a traditional Disney film. The centaurs would have helped ground the whole plot. That is a wild sentence to say. (laughs) That whole planet. The whimsy. I love Labyrinth. The whimsy was, like, the plot. The whimsy on that planet felt like it was a side mission. Yes. And it was a waste of my time. You're talking about the flower planet? The flower planet. Where Reese Witherspoon transforms into a... Leaf dragon, I guess? This is what I'm saying. They turn the centaurs into flowers. The centaurs were in the book on Uriel. They are the ones that help guide them to where the father was. Yeah. They they fucking took them out, and it was so weird. Listen, here's my advice to filmmakers. Every movie's better with a centaur. Yeah. Every single one. It's true. I don't care. It doesn't have to be fantasy. I think they're racist against centaurs. Even the potentially. I think I killed Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> remember the uh, remember the horse cop from uh, Bright who was a centaur. I mean, a cab, but you mean in Bright? Yeah, there's a there's a horse cop in in Bright who's a centaur. Is there really? Yeah, also he's a- just in the background. It's just oh, a throwaway okay. visual he's gag. He's also the stepdad in Onward. Right, the stepdad in Onward is Officer, also a horse cop. Officer Colt. Yeah. I thought you were going to say horse cock. Because <laughs> he's a cop. <laughs> well, I think we could end it there on horse yeah, cock. Yeah, I mean, might as well. Um, yeah, every movie's better than the centaur. Yeah, agreed. So, yeah, four out of ten. That's my final offer. You convinced me that you- that's your opinion. <laughs> I believe you. you. I believe you felt that way. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad. Sometimes I have to convince myself. Mm. Well, I think that'll pretty much do it for us here on another brilliant episode of Swords and Satire. But as always, if you enjoy the show and you'd like to stay connected with us, you can always follow us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It'll help you keep up with the show. Find out what movies we're going to be talking about next. And it's a great way to reach out to us if you want to have a chat about anything we talk about on the episodes. 
And like we mentioned earlier, if you want to be a supporter of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash swordsandsatire. You can join one of our patron tiers and join our community of supporters. Not only will you help us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire, but you'll get bonus stuff. Because fuck saying content. Uh, like voting on a movie we watch each month. And bonus episodes. What kind of episodes? Either listen to an earlier episode of ours, or go to our Patreon to find out. Shameless self-promotion is great! (laughs) That's right, but if you don't have a little bit of extra means to support your favorite podcasting satirists... The best fantasy movie podcast out there. You can always share our podcast with your friends and family. What better way to enjoy your favorite uh, goofy movie reviewers than by doing it with the people you care about? You can even watch what we watch and listen to our episodes. Make fart sounds with your mouth and look at cats like <laughs> or with people. Your, or with your butt. Or with your butt. The traditional method. <laughs> and it, we call that old farting and new farting. And isn't that what Saturday is all about? Satire day? It's <laughs> true. So what are we going to be talking about next week, Charles? We're going to be talking about The Witcher, Season 2, Episode 5, Turn Your Back. I can't wait. But don't turn your back on me. I never would. Good. Turn your back on your Witcher. Don't do that either. Never. Don't let the butcher burn either. No. No. Well, until then, Hail Hail Crom. Crom!